0: are you in need of a pace clock looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks the swim nerd pace clock is the most innovative digital pace clock it connects to your swim nerd mobile app allowing you to program any set your heart desires except for 100 100s while listening to nickelback you can't program that 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 is not allowed if you haven't seen the swim nerd pace clock yet go to swimpractice.com to check it out
1: All right, Melanie Marshall, welcome to the podcast. How are you?
0: Good, well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, where are you coming from? I always ask my guests. Where are you?
0: So I'm in, a, in the middle of the, the United Kingdom in a place called Loughborough. Um, it's the furthest point from water um, in terms of coastline and the whole entire country, I think.
1: Oh, wow. Uh, how did they end up sitting up there for you?
0: Um, Well, it's attached to a university. So Loughborough University is one of the best universities for sport Mm. and it's got some of the best facilities in the UK. So British Swimming kind of um, hacked onto that and then um, set up performance hubs. So there's a national performance centre in Loughborough University and there's another one down in um, Bath and then the Scottish Institute have got one in Stirling. So we've got three sort of high performance centres across the UK.
1: Now, is there a designated leader of the high-performance centres? Are you the person?
0: Yeah, so I'm the leader of the Loughborough one, Dave McNulty, hmm. um, who coached Michael Jameson, Joe Jackson, and um, recently um, he got four medals at the last Olympics, actually. Um, yeah, basically, he heads up Bath, and then Stephen Tigg, coaches Duncan Scott, heads up um, Sterling.
1: Now, is this all fully funded by the government?
0: Yeah, so um, we're supported very kindly by UK Sport. So when um, people uh, buy lottery tickets, um, it goes to three areas. So it goes to arts, it goes to sport, and then it goes to um, selected charities and stuff. So um, that's where we kind of get our finance. We're very lucky on that.
1: Now, In terms of funding, do you guys have guarantees? Like, do they say a year, two years, four years? How do they present it to you?
0: So we have a system whereby athletes have to perform once a year, uh, and there's two places that you can do that performance. So it gets reviewed in um, after the trials, and it gets reviewed again after the major competition in the summer. And there's two sort of tiers. There's the tier of funding that's for performance athletes, and there's um, that class as the in, you know the, the closest Olympics, and then the other funding fund, funding brand is. Um, for what they would class as podium potential, so athletes that they see as an investment for Paris
1: wow that's a, that's that's awesome but do you do you feel pressure uh, having to do it that way
0: um yes and no I think the athletes feel quite pressured because it's it's good funding um but it's you know if they lost the funding it's they'll have moved their lives and it can be quite a challenge but I think um I, I've kind of having been through being an athlete and gone through that journey of on funding, off funding and all that sort of stuff, mm. you, you kind of make the decision what you want to attach emotion to. And I've just made a decision to always have enough in the bank to have five years off. Yeah,
1: Beautiful. I love it. I've, I've got enough in the bank to have about five days off right now living in LA, but um, that's wasn't
0: living in a cardboard box, but um... <laughs>
1: beautiful listen there's so much I want to get into and and I want to I want to talk about you and I want to talk about um your progression as a as an athlete and as a coach and that sort of thing but right now there's obviously uh a lot going on with with ISL and you're you're the head coach of the the London Raw and there's only a matter of weeks before you guys go away to kind of start the season so give us an update what's happening right now with your team
0: So um, we're in good shape and we're just waiting on some confirmations um, on certain people in terms of we've cast out some of the travel restrictions so we've just got to wait and see who or who is not available. Um, But we look in good shape um, and I just think that it's just a privilege to be able to go and race. I mean, we're all really excited about the opportunity. Um, Obviously, I'm I'm on the fence of the British because obviously we hear what's going on but we're all really excited to be able to go. So um, I just think... It'll be a unique circumstance, and I think that it's, you know, where last year it was, it's going to be really competitive again this year, but there still will be an element of, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and some things aren't out of our control. So I think it's about once you get your team and, you know, you can get everybody that you can across the pond, it's just about, you know, maximising your opportunities with the people that you can get. And I just think six weeks of racing, for me personally as part of an Olympic preparation is perfect, yeah. so um, it 's a bit of a relief really that we we 're allowed to go and um, we can compete, but the raw looks good um, and you know I think we'll we 'll we'll we'll certainly be competitive, um, but I guess it 's to see what happens with you know how many how many how many teams can fill full teams see yeah. you know all it's different on paper when you look at the logistics of getting there.
1: So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we set this talk up weeks ago and it just so happened that yesterday kind of some word broke that the Aussies um, wouldn't be able to go. Um, So where does it stand with you? Like you you guys are Aussie heavy, um, some of the best athletes in the world. Uh, Are they telling you that they can't compete right now?
0: So it's, it's on the fence. I think we um, will know more by Friday. Um, There's a, there's a few logistical challenges, but we, We've got some good relationships with other people that we can, you know, say if that does happen, we can, we can, we can fill some of those gaps. I mean, if, if we don't get those guys, that's going to be, um, you know, I'd be devastated around that. But we'll know the full results on that by Friday um, as to whether or not they can, they can definitely travel. Um, um, it would be, we'll have to wait and see.
1: Where's the word coming from right now? Is it, is it coming, is it a government restriction? Is it a Swimming Australia restriction? Where is the, where's the hang up right now?
0: Um, I think it's a mixture. It's it's a real challenging time. They, you know, they've got a low transmission rate most of the country, haven't they? And I think they've got to, like all of us have got to, we've got to weigh up the risks and the rewards. Um, I think for some people in Europe where we've got no racing, it's less of a risk. I think from some people who are from further afield, um, it may be more of a risk about not being able to get home. And I think that everybody's got to go through that process of weighing up risk versus reward, and making the decision that's right for them for their their year of preparation really
1: yeah it's crazy and I, and I understand it all you know i get it being an aussie being a swimmer former swimmer being a coach um you know i understand all the challenges for sure it's um it's definitely a trying time i'm i was happy to hear that the isl were going to do some things to be able to put this in place because i'm watching other sports you know where i'm i'm a big ufc fan i'm watching basketball right now i'm seeing stuff go on it's certainly possible but in order to get swimmers from around the world that's a that's a massive challenge right
0: yeah because there's i think there's 55 nations that are involved you know and it's um you know over 600 athletes that's that in itself is is a big challenge but i think it's about making sure that everybody sticks to the protocols that are put in place everybody follows guidance and people don't abuse uh, what it is to be able to compete. And we make sure that we get through the process, um, you know, COVID-free. Everybody returns home safe. And that needs to be the priority, particularly in the, the first stage of the, you know, when people travel in. They need to follow protocols, have a clean, you know, clear procedure. And everybody needs to do their bit to make sure we can run the competition.
1: So has anybody officially pulled off your team yet uh, in terms of Aussies?
0: Uh, well, I, think I, Car-
1: I know Kyle Chalmers did, obviously, with the shoulder yeah, injury, I right? put
0: out the note last night. Um, I think we're just waiting forty-eight hours to make an official announcement on things. Um, yeah. like, we're just waiting on a few details, so yeah. can't really give you that info yet.
1: Yeah, no worries, no worries. Um, is, so I, I guess there's a plan B, obviously, for the London Raw if that was to happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think everybody. I mean, in a pandemic, you need a plan. What, what I've noticed <laughs> is you need a plan A, a B, a C, a D all the way down to Z, and that's daily. So, I mean, nothing seems, to, um, nothing seems to run to plan at the moment. It's just take each day at a time and just try and make the best of each day, really, which actually quite suits me, to be
1: honest. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that uh, in a minute. I definitely want to get into what's going on with you guys right now, but um, I do want to talk about you a little bit because you're a special person. You know? you're, uh, you're one of the, the leading coaches in the world, um, and, and I think it's, it's, I'm not the first person to tell you this, and I'm sure you've felt this, but it is a man's world in that sense. You know, there's a lot of male coaches out there and here we are, one of the best coaches in the world being female coaching, probably the greatest athlete in the world. Who, who's a, who's a, a man, um, a very big, strong man too, you know? And, uh, so you've done exceptionally well for yourself, kind of putting yourself out there and breaking the mold and, and, um and, and uh, putting yourself in a position to be recognised as one of the best coaches in the world. So how do you feel about that?
0: Uh, I feel very privileged. Um, but my you know, I, my mum always taught me um, that you've got two arms and you've got two legs and you've got energy and enthusiasm and just go out and give the world the best you've got. And I've just kind of stuck to that my whole life, really. I don't see men and women and I don't see black or white. I just see people and opportunity and it's just – that's how I've lived my life. And I think for me, um, you know, I just think if I paved the way for other people to think that it's possible, I think that's a real privilege for me and it's a real honour. But me personally, I've always been, I suppose, the first girl to do everything. I was the first girl to play football with the boys at primary school. I was the first girl on a sports course at school. I was, uh, you know, the first girl to train with 13 boys um, the last two years of my career. So I've always been, the, I haven't really noticed. I've just, I've just lived that, look, get stuck in, give it a go and see, you know, try and make the best of what you've got and, and go from there, really. So, um, and I do think in coaching, um, I think there's feminine ways of doing things and there's masculine ways of doing things. But a great coach understands whether you're a man or a woman. So me as a female, I need to be able to, at times, exhibit max masculine traits and also be able to exhibit feminine traits a man should be the same he should be able to exhibit masculine traits but also know what it is to exhibit feminine traits and so i think that that sometimes that that's one of the things that i always try and do is um yeah, I guess, I
1: guess that's it. I guess that's it. Really. No, listen, it's great advice. Uh, I I agree. You know, when I started coaching the Auburn swim team, uh, initially I was just with the men. And then um, after a couple of years, they said, all right, you're the head coach of the women now. And I was like, Oh shit. Like, what do I do? And, and I had to figure that out. Uh, it took time and didn't always get it right. Um, I went in kind of with a masculine approach and then I realized I needed feminine touch in certain areas and that was difficult for me to understand and develop Uh, and like i said i got it wrong a lot of the times and it wasn't intentional but something that you you certainly have to learn um but i agree with you wholeheartedly on that it's a a really interesting way to put it i hadn't thought of it that way before but it's certainly true right
0: yeah and i think um and then once you get into the complexities in terms of how people perceive you and interpret you and how your messages you know then you start to see it's actually a much thicker issue than a female and male thing it's it's the breadth of it in terms of communicating and it's just it's such a it's such a thick you know it's a dense thing it's not just a it's not just a male and a female thing it's really not it's like learning styles and um communication pathways and the way you your body language exhibits and influencing and manipulating and all those kind of you know those the extra things that come with once you unpick and once you once once you look past gender it's a it's an even more complex um hmm. set of set of set of boundaries i suppose
1: true true yeah yeah well you, listen you're you're an incredible coach but you were uh, an amazing swimmer and we kind of started our career around the same time around 1995 you're a little younger than me but um, you were better at a younger age, but you—we uh, we, kind of traveled the world together a little bit. You and I—we kind of bumped into into each other in certain places. But um, talk to me about your experience as a swimmer and how that maybe has affected you know who you are as a coach today.
0: Uh, I think you know I had a really good career, but also I think I, the biggest thing that's been the learning thing for me as a coach is that I sort of. Um, I kind of experienced everything I think you could experience as an athlete. I had the highs, the lows, the yeah. not being good enough, turning from good to great, you know, mm-hmm. being the underdog, being the favourite, on-funding, off-funding, good junior, lost in the middle, all those kind of scenarios. So you've sort of had a, as a mentor, you've had a real front-road ticket mm-hmm. of experience. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the reason why I came into coaching really was because I felt I'd learned so much through those experiences that I wanted to, you know, support athletes with my knowledge and help them have a better time and a better experience through having my support. So that was really why I came into coaching. And I think that's one been one of the things that I, I've learned so much being a coach the last 11 years, but I still, my, my instincts are still from being an athlete. So when I go to an Olympic Games, because I've been there and done it and seen it and I'm, it just feels like home to me. It doesn't stress me out. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like um, a big deal. It just feels like a really fabulous experience. And so I think, you know, when I go into arena coach mode, particularly, I feel like that that athlete experience that I had, it was really, was really important and has really helped me shape who I am as an arena coach. I always say it's like a soldier, would you rather go onto the battlefield with a soldier that's been there and been shot three times, or would you rather go on there with a government official? And I'm like, I'd rather go on with a soldier, please. <laughs> so from an arena coaching point of view, I feel like that's that, was, that athlete standpoint really has given me some really good instincts and some, some real good empathy and insight to support athletes in that environment.
1: Wow, I could uh, I could really identify with everything you were saying there because I feel the same way. You know, I I started coaching some of the best athletes in the world straight out of my you know career as a swimmer, and and then going to the Olympics in 2008 and and winning the gold medal with Caesar Cielo. Um, I, it felt I felt at home, like I felt at peace. It was it was like okay, let's go win. Like a, to me, it was almost like a progression. Like I've been to Sydney, I've been to Athens, now now I'm in Beijing. Now it's time to win. So I uh, felt really comfortable with it. And and, and I get the sense that you're, you're saying exactly the same thing with how you are with, with Adam.
0: Yeah. I think my job throughout the period with Adam was he almost went into the same scenarios I went into, into Rio, you know, the favorite everybody was watching. But, you know, my job over the, the period, the four-year preparation was to to dilute that overwhelming, what can be overwhelming first experience by you know creating some scenarios that would you know make him feel like it was just another swim and not get overwhelmed by it and just be able to deliver and do what he I knew he was capable of and you know I would never have had those ideas that I had um to help again dilute that first Olympic experience if I hadn't been there and done it myself and if I hadn't failed in there as well so um yeah
1: yeah uh, well I want to I want to ask you about that but you you were also you were the, the world's um, number one ranked athlete in 2004, I believe, going into the Olympics. So talk to me about what, what happened. How, what, what did you experience being under that kind of pressure and how did it unfold?
0: So I think for me, um, I was from I the quickest time in the world at the trials and that time was still the quickest at the end of the year. Mm. I think the Olympics was won in 158-0 by Camelia Potec from lane one. So, I mean, it was quite a traumatic experience. Um, but like with any traumatic experience, you can either you learn from it and get better or you can you know, decide that life's not that good anymore. So um, I definitely, from that experience, was a much better person, much more stronger character. But I guess I think if I identify what it was, I think um, I pushed too hard. I think I had a lot of high anxiety around me. And I think there was quite a lot of organis- organisational stress going on at the time that... I fell a bit victim to. And, I, and the big thing for me is I never believed in myself enough. You know, mm. there was an underlying, when it came to it, I just didn't believe in myself. Mm. And I fought my way to get there, you know, I'd scrapped and wanted to prove everybody wrong. And once I'd got there and I'd fought everybody, I was like, oh, right, I have to actually believe in myself now. And that was the <coughs> thing that I was struggled with. So I think the three things were it's quite a lot of organizational stress. I didn't believe in myself. Um, and I think that you know, I probably burnt myself out by the
1: time I got there. Uh, That's interesting. You and I could be the same person, really. You know, I think our careers mirror each other in in many different ways, but, but it's true. I I kind of felt, um, and, and I don't want to put anybody on the spot here, but I kind of felt isolated once I got to the Olympics because, um, you know, you look around and you see your competitors and everybody starts to tell you how great they are and how great they look and how incredible they are. And, and you start to feel like you're on an island. You start to feel like, oh, wow, like, well, first of all, they're right. And second of all, does, does anybody believe in me? Does anybody back me? And I get the sense that that's what you provide for Adam as well, is like you you provide a partnership where you and him are on the same page, you know, what you I even see you together. It's like you walk together, you warm up together, you eat together. It's, it's like, there's this partnership there that is unbreakable and that's kind of something that I felt like was lacking. And it sounds like you, you went through a very similar experience where you just didn't have this tight bond with somebody that truly believed in you. And it sounds like that's what you provide to Adam.
0: Yeah, I think it was, it was, it was as well. It was, I mean, I had a great coach going into that. Um, and you know he was he was a great supporter but um i think sometimes as a coach your wants and desires can override what your athletes needs are sometimes um so i can i can only talk about adam um in my experience but for me um you were pe- you periodize your training right so i think you should periodize the language and positive language mm-hmm. So in the winter i will be more critical I'll be more upfront, I'll be more confrontational. When I go from January through to April, I'll be half of that cycle, I'll be confrontational and then I'll give a little bit of positive. And then my language will change into the competition. And then when it comes to the Olympics, that last cycle, it will be just, you know, all as much positive and I'll be looking for the positives rather than the learning. And I think that's the thing as coaches, we sometimes we don't do. We will look for the, you can make this better, you can do that. But actually that is perceived and received by an athlete as I'm not good enough. So actually mm. we should work just as hard to find out, ah, I love that. Show me that again. That mm. is delightful. And and that's the thing. We make the effort to try and find how we get better, but we don't actually affirm great behavior and great performance regularly enough, in my opinion. And so I think that's what I learned from the experience of you know Athens was, how to look for the positives and really celebrate the super strengths. And also when is the right time to, to go to town on those things. So,
1: wow. Uh, That's the second thing I didn't really fully understand how to verbalize. And you've done that, uh, twice now that's that's awesome that's what makes you a great coach so, you know it's hard to hear sometimes when people say you're an incredible coach or you're one of the best in the world or but that's what separates you that that understanding right there most coaches don't have that awareness or that understanding of exactly what you just said that there it's a really powerful thing and i'm i'm really thankful that you shared that with us um because i agree 100 percent by the way um so talk to us about look, you're, you're a great coach and there's many people in your stable and that you've had influence over a lot of different athletes, but you're obviously known for coaching Adam Peaty, who is, you know, probably the best athlete in the world, certainly the most dominant. So I'd like to just kind of dig into him a little bit and your perception of him and, and how you've got the best out of him. But, um, how do you know when to push an athlete like that? How do you know when it's time to like, no, that's not good enough. And then there are other times where you've just got to back up and, and let them be who they are at that point.
0: I think that is, uh, you know, we've worked with someone for a long time. For me, with Adam, it's, it's an instinct because we've gone through so much. But to really get to the depths of what's going on for an athlete, it's the power of your questioning. You're going to be more informed when you gather more information. A lot of the time coaches just dive in and presume that this is the answer, this is the answer, because we, we want to fix things. But actually the quality of the information that you gather from your athlete helps you inform whether you need to push or you need to hold back. And I think that you know, that's a danger sometimes is we want to help straight away, but actually we, what we see is not what they're experiencing or feeling. And so for me, I think it's about the quality of your information gathering with your athletes and the quality of your conversation and the the quality to let them be heard. And then you really know what's going on. And with regards to Adam, um, I remember specifically when we went round for, when I walked him round for the, and that's my favourite bit of that. I love that bit. When we take that walk together and I drop him off. I'm making no difference really, but I just, I love that bit. (laughs) You are. Um, but I remember <laughs> the, at Worlds in uh, Grand U, I remember I knew that 56 was on and I was like, I can, I can say something here that's going like, to wind him up and we probably won't get it tomorrow mm. or I can wait till tomorrow. And I was just like, you know what, his moments now, If he do, he's been itching for this for three and a half years and I know it's in there, it's on. Um, and I just remember whispering something to, into his ear that I knew would get an emotional reaction because that's where you get the extra ten percent from Adam—is that emotional reaction. Um, and I just knew. And then he almost said like he felt disappointed the day after because he didn't do it again. Mm. But I was just—I just remember um, knowing him that well that I knew that he needed to do it then. He had to do it then. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just time and quality of conversation and the things that you've been through. And I think. The big thing with me and Adam is we've spent a lot of informal time together. So we've done charity bike rides together. You know, I would go for a beer with him um, and have a conversation you know, after a, a meet. And, uh, you know, that informal conversation is where you get that sort of... You can't do that with every athlete that you work with. Um, but, you know, it's knowing where that informal conversation is appropriate and, it's, and it can be powerful. Um,
1: Beautiful. Well, what I love about your relationship too and what you've done with him is that, kind of like an Ian Thorpe in a way, is that you know everybody's here and everybody's thinking is here and everybody's physical capabilities were here. And then an Ian Thorpe comes along and and shifts it, not one, not two, not three, maybe four steps above everybody else. And that's kind of what you did with Adam. It was just this huge shift. And he wasn't doing what everybody else was doing. He was doing something that most people had never seen before you know the way that he swims his breaststroke was revolutionary in a sense so how did you come up with how you were going to swim it for him specifically in terms of technically you know that shift that he was making and knowing that it would jump you guys four steps ahead of the rest of the world
0: I think um if you actually watch what he does so the basic principles of breaststroke in terms of you know, a full extension of the hands nearly when you, you place that kick. If you actually watch what he does, he actually does do a similar sort of thing to everybody else. He just does it quicker than everybody else. Mm. Um, so if you ever see shots of him underwater, where he places his feet and where his hands are, it's, just, it's a perfect alignment. But I think the one thing that I was really keen on with Adam was I didn't get in his way. He had this technique that was working for him. Mm. And my job was to, you know, if someone had tried to change Michael Johnson, you know, you wouldn't teach that, would you? But it worked for him. And I think that sometimes, you know, if it works for them and the fundamentals of where they drive power from and get propulsion from are working, then it's about, you know, not getting in their way sometimes. Sometimes as a coach, we've got such a desperation to own it ourselves. We actually end up getting in their way. And that's the thing I did with him as a kid. It just didn't get in his way. It, it looked good. He kicked well. He pulled well. And so we just, we just tried to condition it, refine it, evolve it, and just work on it you know, week in, week
1: out. A lot of breaststrokers talk about if they rate up too high, they end up slipping water. How does he not slip water?
0: If you see, well, first of all, <laughs> you see the size of his hands. No. Uh, he's got like two buckets at the front mm. um but if you see the way he connects he, the whole of his forearms just they never really lose sometimes when people rate they just go to hands but actually he just sweeps if you watch him he just sweeps like really efficiently and effectively and he never really loses a relationship with the water so it might look like a fast rate but actually it's it's not it doesn't it doesn't look fast for him um, it just seems to work.
1: How did you get an understanding of breaststroke? Cause to me, it's still a foreign language. I'm still trying to figure out where to put my tongue and how to pronounce the words. I don't understand breaststroke. And obviously you've got a pretty deep understanding of where'd that come for you?
0: Well, I think when I came into coaching, I, because I'd been through quite a lot as an athlete, I really accepted responsibility straight away, you know, of my role and how important it is to have answers and to have knowledge and have experience and so I just submerged myself in a load of breaststroke books online. And I spent a lot of time studying what Kitajima had done and Nari over in um, Japan. And I just really tried to submerse myself. And then, and he sort of came along and I was just like, I could see his potential. I was like, right, I need to stay 10 steps ahead of this because um, I feel like this could be something pretty special. So, um, and I just kept finding new ideas or new ways to get better and, you know crazy stuff like um you know i wanted to improve his his start so i got him pushing my car off a curb so that he would learn how to drive his back foot you know we just did really cool stuff really and just like probably off the wall stuff
1: well uh, that's awesome i love that stuff the off the wall stuff is what gets me engaged and gets me want to come back to practice the next day as well but um you know, there is obviously things that separate people like him. Um, There are things that you can teach. There are things you can mold and there are just some things that are just inherent. Just, he's just, he just has them that maybe other people will never have. What are the, what are some of those different categories? What are the things that you can teach? What are the things that he's molded and what are the things that you just can't teach?
0: Um, I think the one thing about Adam through was probably the perfect partnership. Was he was like a sponge, so when I first because I came in I came into coaching in a small program, and I was an ex Olympian and I'd just finished whatever. I was almost a bit. A lot of the kids, I think, I got a, I got a better uptake because I was almost a bit godly. Do you know what I mean? Because they were mm. like, oh my god, we've got her teaching us.
1: Mm.
0: Um, I might not have known any more than anybody else, but there sure. was that perception. Sure. But Adam was very very good at it, straight away. He was like a sponge. So anything I would say, he would take it as gospel through those early years. And, you know, if I, uh, so he would just really listen. So a lot of the insight that I had, you know, I did a lot of stuff with him about racing hard in heats in regional competitions. And, you know, and then if you track his progress pretty much every year throughout his age groups, he went nine swims, nine PBs, because we did a lot of the sort of competitive stuff with him when he was younger. You know, he was... Going for a British record, British age group record, and he just missed it. So I asked the organisers if we could try again, and they did. And he just missed it by a little bit more. And so I asked him, "Can we do it one more time?" And he still missed it. So we did a lot of that kind of <sighs> stuff. But back to your, I suppose, original question. Um, he was like a sponge. He was mm-hmm. really, he was, he listened and he applied, and um, he was very moldable What separates him is you won't have anybody that works harder. He will just to the ends of the earth. If I say, if I said now it's four fifteen hundreds breaststroke every single day, morning and night, with three hours sleep until the Olympics, there would be no questions asked. He would just get on with it. Um, and I think his just ability to want to get better and get better, and how he uses the science and the team around him now, and you know, he's just so dedicated. He's like always the last man standing, always. And even if it's like, he will find a way. So even if he can't, there will be a way he'll find it. And that's what separates him. And also as well, he can absorb a lot. You know, a lot of the, you know, in terms of, I did a lot of background work with him when he was younger, but he was always able to absorb and adapt very quickly. And, and that's the thing. It's like, you have to be physically capable, psychologically capable, technically capable, tactically capable, and your character needs to be capable. And all of his capacities in those areas are huge.
1: He seems very competitive. He seems like somebody that will, uh, you know, chew you up and spit you out. So sure. that, that can be, that can be good and could also be harmful to people around him. So how do you manage that within a group setting?
0: So that's been a really interesting journey. Um, cause we obviously changed our training venue and, um, he's got a system in his mind that works and obviously you've got, you then come into another system that is different things, but, I think for Adam, what we've tried to do and what I've tried, everything in Rio was all sort of me saying, look, we'll do this and manipulating things behind the scene. And this cycle was about, right, how do you want it to look? How do you control it? And what I, we've come to the analogy of is you absolutely need that competitive anger. But if you're walking down the bread aisle and you've got that competitive anger against a 74-year-old who's going for the last piece of bread at the same time, <laughs> that is no good. And also, you've then wasted that energy fighting with the old granny of 74 years of age for the piece of bread that I could have in my swim session.
1: Yeah. Don't be like Conor McGregor. You don't want to end up on the internet.
0: Exactly. So <laughs> we did a lot of work around that and a lot of work around him understanding that not everybody's the same. Not everybody has the same capabilities or capacities and that's okay. And we've made very much the four years about you do you. And you know, people like him, they get a lot of criticism for nothing. People badger him all the time and, I think what we've done is through a variety of experiences with SAS trainers, with you know leadership people and mentoring him myself and all those kind of things. We've, we've made him a Batman suit and now whatever comes at him, it just washes off him and whatever, whatever, you know, so whatever will be, as long as he's happy in his own skin, which he really is, then, you know, let's keep it about the swimming really.
1: Well, listen, I, um, I had my first, uh, daughter when I was 23 years old and I swam until I was 31. He's obviously just had a kid himself. Um, How do you think this will affect or change anything that's going on with him?
0: We've had plenty of um, conversations around this, you know, myself and our sports psychologist and uh, Adam's partner and him. We've had lots of meetings around this and talked a lot about this. Um, And there's two things. One is emotionally, this is the greatest thing that will ever and will ever happen to him. Sure. But practically, it is a challenge. So we've sat down and we've talked about red, orange and green. And so when he's in his red stage, that's when, you know, everybody on the home team has to step up so he can have some selfish time and have permission to be selfish. Orange zone is when he's training, when he can be half at home and half in our elite athlete centre. And then the green time is when he can just be at home and, and, you know, just be kind of normal in the house, dad. And we've looked at, you know, how many red zones we need to get to make another adaptation this year. We've looked at, listen to Ari and what she needs during those green times. And we've all kind of got these roles and responsibilities to really make. We've got 11 months left, as in what we see, everything I know about him, we've got one last push. And I think everybody. On his home team, everybody on his friendship team, everybody on his sponsorship team, his science team, his coaching team um, is all committed to having this um, last 11 months as the best 11 months we've ever had. And it's just about adding one more more dynamic and including his family and, you know, communicating well and looking at how do we do it, and what do we need through those times when it's going to be hard and non-compromised and optimal, not survival, is what we're looking at. You know, yeah. we can survive this year with no sleep, but it's not optimal. And he wants to get quicker by a bigger margin than he's ever got. And it's like, well, everything needs to be optimal. So Arie's his partner needs to be optimally supporting him to be able to sleep and, you know, be with their family at that time. And so that's sort of how we've done it. We've done a traffic light system on, you know, sleep management and when training progression happens and when recovery is. And we're all sort of sticking and lining up to that and just keep working on that as we go through.
1: Awesome. Love it. Uh, from a man with experience with that, uh, I think you're on the right track. Yeah. Couldn't get any better plan than that. Um, good stuff. So, um, listen, I've coached some breaststrokers and and I've had conversations with them and I thought, you know, okay, look, 101's possible. A minute would be nice. 59 would be incredible. How do you get someone to believe that they could go 56 and a hundred breaststroke? Like, how did you guys even start that conversation?
0: But it's really interesting because I was speaking at the BSCA conference, which is our British coaches conference. And it was after he went 59, nine, 18. Mm. And I stood in the room like a, probably an arrogant ex swimmer. Mm. And I, but I meant it. And I said, this boils from 57 and the room hummed. Like, mm. And I was like, I believed it then because I just knew what he hadn't done in terms of preparation, what his window was, what his capacities were. And I just, it's just, I knew we could work at the level that was needed to get there. So I always believed in that. And then when he went 57-1, there were so many things still wrong with that. I was like, you can definitely go 56-8. So, mm. well, you can definitely go 56. So I actually think, I actually think he could have gone quicker in the summer. But, mm. um, so yeah, I just think it's, I just, I never doubted. I just, I just never doubted that that wasn't possible. And that's the biggest thing really is it's, it's you know, we're, we're each other's belief partner. I believe in him 110%. There's no doubts in my mind that he can't get quicker. No doubts. And there's no doubts in his mind that he won't. So if we've got that and we give it a go, if it works out, great. And if not, well, we've believed 100%, we've tried 100%, and we've all committed 100%, and you can't do any more than that.
1: Well, a lot of, I know the hundreds pretty well, and a lot of swimming a fast 100 is this balance between how much you give up front and how much have you got at the back, you know? And so you're always trying to play that role of, all right, I want to, I want to build speed in practice. I want to build endurance in practice to finish that back end. So you're always teetering with, do I do more of this? Do I do less of that? You know, this balance between how fast do I go out? How fast can I come home? So there's obviously an equation there. Like what's, what's the equation for you? Are you guys trying to get out faster? Are you trying to come home, quicker? Like, how do you balance it in your head in terms of trying to figure out how to get faster?
0: For me, it's optimal details. So what's the exact breakout that he needs to hit the exact count? What is, you know, How do we rehearse that, that exact time that he needs to come up to make sure he hits on a fingertip finish into um, that first 50s? It's, it's basically now about, because physically we can get a bit better, um, but we've hit the capacities in, in some areas but it's just about how you get the details. It's like a puzzle. So at the minute he's got 75% of the puzzle on one day delivered, Mm -hmm. but he hasn't got all of the puzzle puzzle delivered. Mm -hmm. So it's about optimal details now. So as in, and how we rehearse those optimal details. So they just become his dominant response under pressure.
1: Can people do what he's doing? Like is there other guys out there that could possibly be doing what he's doing or is he just on an Island by himself?
0: Um, no comment. I suppose on that one. I don't. I, you know, I just think, you know, everybody has got their limits and um, everybody's got their capabilities. And you know, all my eyes are focused on is what's his capabilities. Of course, other people can come up, and of course, other people can, you know, chase and contend and and absolutely they should be doing. Um, but you know, you always get caught when you play TIG when you look backwards. So I just want to keep looking forwards with
1: him. It's a good answer. You're clever. I like you. You're very clever. Um, so yeah, yeah. Well, well, tell me this then. So what, it's, it's easy to figure out how to build an engine. It's easy to figure out how to build a person into what you want them to be. But there's obviously that the mental side of it. And he, and he seems to be a mental giant. So how do you build the physical, you know, but how do you build that mental giant in somebody?
0: I think I was really lucky to have him at a young age. And so, like I say, when I came out of sport with all that experience straight away and I had a sponge, there was lots of things I did with him from a young age that was, I, you know, it's almost like now I don't have to worry about him as an arena at a competitor because we were doing so many things when he was younger that was going to prepare him for the arena. Um, you know, I took him to Zambia for a training camp. And the reason I took him there was because I wanted him to cope with whatever wherever and have a reality of what a real problem is you know some athletes are like oh my god that's a real problem i'm like nah a real problem is a 12-hour surgery with a cancer patient and his kids are waiting outside and he's paying the mortgage that's a real problem i think when they start to lose that perspective that's when you get high anxiety and high stress so I did lots of things when he was a young kid. So when he, was, um, when he was 18, I took him to Zambia. And the reason I wanted to take him there was because I wanted him to cope with unpredictability. And when we went there, you know, training was due to be at eight o'clock and it would be at nine. You were due to get a spoon with your cereal, you would get a fork. The pool was due to be ice blue. It was green. You know, all those kind of things. And they just, just put more and more competitive hurdles in his way. And he kept getting over them and over them and over them. And then that's where you build confidence and robustness. Um, and so when in Rio, when his bags got stolen with all of his technical equipment, everything, he was still in the T-shirt that he traveled in for three days after. Because he almost had got to this mindset where he's like, the more difficult you make it, the better. I want to stink in this T-shirt. I don't care if they, you know, whatever happens, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do the job. And that's sort of the mantra we had through his development and the club that he came through. Our mantra was very much like if they put the lane if they say it's cancelled and they put the lane ropes in the sea, you're gonna dive in first and not give a shit about how hard it is. And that's the thing is he had good stock, we had an unpredictable club environment that was, you know, heavy pop, you know, nine a lane, you know, bobble lane ropes, high sides. So, and I just kept putting competitive hurdles in all the time to challenge and test him um and competitively test him as well particularly mid-season i would always test him competitively mid-season when he was young and then if you look now he can't he almost can't help himself blasting heats because it's just his it's in his dna
1: brilliant love it god i love that stuff Uh, it's awesome have you struggled um getting other athletes into your team and them thinking uh, why Why aren't I as good as him? Like, you're, you're this special coach. Why, where's the magic dust that you're just going to sprinkle on me and it's all going to happen? Have you had those athletes that have struggled uh, mentally to figure that out for themselves?
0: It's certainly an interesting dynamic when you've got an athlete like that. There's, there's a large amount of conversations that need to have happen around the periphery. A, because you're right, people do think I've got some magic dust, and it's I haven't, you know, in terms of um, – I'm 110% committed. I'm trying to get better every day and I don't have all the answers. Um, so, it, and it's, there's loads of things that happen. There's also a, when you've got someone that's got a, a real big threshold for work and capacity and doesn't ever have a bad day, it can be quite intimidating for other people. But again, you know, what, what I've tried to do amidst, you know, the National Centre and amidst my group that I work with intimately is it's about you do you. You know, we all have our strengths and we all have our weaknesses, and it's about you trying to grow your weaknesses and really have confidence in your super strengths. Like, Adam's got no patience, but somebody else has got more patience, and it's about you knowing what you're good at and and working those those things out. Don't concentrate on what everyone else has got; that's exhausting and you can't control it. So we've got that mantra now in terms of embedded, I think, in the culture that. Not every person's going to get to the mountain the same way. Not every person's going to get to the top of the mountain um, at the same speed. But as long as we're all trying and getting, you know, making progress, that's all we can do.
1: So Nice. Talk to me about a couple of other athletes that aren't Adam Petey that you're working with, that you're excited about.
0: So I work with uh, Luke Greenbank. He got a bronze medal at the World Championships uh, last year. And he, 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 did, uh, he was a backstroke leg for the men's medley relay. Um, I'm really excited about him and it's a it's a really beautiful story with Luke because I promised myself without I won't tell you the full story but I promised myself when I was a when I came into coaching I would never do that thing where you say to an athlete it's in your head you can't cope with it Mm -hmm. I promised myself if it was my responsibility I would take responsibility and Luke was a world junior record holder when he came to me and um he basically, we tried a few things and we just never got to the same performance. Mm. And he went to the European Championships in 2018. And he just, again, he was just swimming 157s when he had a best of 156.5. And I just couldn't get him over the threshold. And I was like, Mel, this is, this is your fault. And I made the decision in that moment to go and talk to him. And I made the decision to to take the whole of the responsibility for two reasons. One, I didn't want him to think he couldn't compete and wasn't mentally strong enough for the arena because he is and two I wanted him to have confidence in himself that if we got it right we could start on a new page I remember sitting down with him and I remember saying this is on me I haven't got this right I haven't got the physiology model right I need to go back all I'm asking from you is don't give up on me and he goes shut my hand and he said I won't give up on you and I went back and I talked to Mo Farah's coach I talked to um, Tim Kerrison who's now in British cycling and I have talked to the best physiologist that I could find and get hold of and I came up with this new model I went back and talked to his home coach I built an alliance with Luke to almost make him feel like he was doing what he did into the world juniors which he was sort of but it was a bit different so he had this new belief in this new program and I said let's go for it and we did and he got better and better and better and then he you know, he went 155 at the World Champs, well, at the trials, and then again at the World Champs. And it was my one of my proudest moments as a coach because I lived by what I promised, which was if it was my fault, I would apologise, I would stand up, and I would say, I've messed this up, and I need to get it right for you. And, and we are so tight now, and it was such a... I mean, I cried my eyes out, do you know what I mean? I'm a total girl when it comes to those sort of things, like... You I took my dog in at night with a fleecy blanket. I'm, I'm soft underneath my character. But, <laughs> um, but, yeah, and it was just a great moment because it was – I'd, I'd, I'd arena coached him all year to be simple with his tactics and have real confidence in it. And the tactic that, we, that he did and he reverted to under the stressful situation, it was just – it was going to happen. So it was great. It was brilliant. Uh, and then I'd – I've currently picked up Anna Hopkin. She's exciting. Mm. Sarah Vasey, you know, um, World Championship finalist. She won Commonwealth Games. Um, and then I've got a couple of young guns on the move. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing them turn from boy to man or half man, as I say they are at the moment.
1: <laughs> Good for you. It sounds exciting. You've got, you got some talent in your, in your stable and they've got a great coach. That's awesome. So uh, are you guys through COVID restrictions? Are you back into full training in preparations for Tokyo?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's, you're not gonna, we're not going to be without COVID restrictions until next year, I don't think. I mean, I've been coaching in a mask. We're two metres apart. You know, we're filling in forms every day in terms of, you know, where is everybody and all those kind of things. Um, we were lucky to get back in the water. We had 12 weeks out of the water where we were just – everybody was on Zoom in gyms, in their garages that we'd just made up. and So that was quite a challenge. Um, but I think it's just what I've said to my athletes is, As long as we've got water, we've got lane ropes, we can do it. And I think that's the thing we need to hold on to is as long as we've got that, all the fancy stuff around the edges, if we can't get that, well, that's a luxury that we, we can, you know, that determination, dedication, commitment and attitude can all make up for.
1: Yeah, sounds pretty familiar to most programs right now where they're at and how they're dealing with things. Not fully back, but not, not fully out either. So it's nice to be getting some water time. Um, listen, a lot, of the, a lot of people that listen to me are coaches and they love, or are swimmers that want to be like Adam Petey. So they love hearing about a set that maybe Adam does on a regular basis. What's, a, what's an Adam Petey breaststroke set? You don't have to give me times necessarily, but just give me a set that you'd love to do with him.
0: So I did a set for three years into Rio. The reason I'll tell you it's into Rio because I've got a better set now into Tokyo.
1: <laughs>
0: Good. So I did a set for three years and it had a psychological component, a physical component and a tactical, tactical and technical component. And it was 1650s and it always started from April to the main meet. And 1650s on 16 weeks out, 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, all the way to three uh, to two, two weeks out. And I started it in year two of the four-year cycle at 28.6 and he had to do 16 with the right rate, the right count um, and 28.6. The mm. week after it was 15 of them, right rate, right count um, and if, and then the week after and it was 26.5. The week after that was 26.4 with 14 of them, right rate, right count, 26.3, 76. So it, we would finish in terms of the into the taper on front end speed completely rehearsed on. Um, right, rate, right, right, count, and it was sixteen at a slower pace because that was what I perceived as um, you know doable for a longer period of time. And then I started it two years out. I started at twenty eight four, and then um, and then I worked down a tenth a week. And then into Rio, I started at twenty eight two and got down to twenty six six over the course of the time. Um, if you didn't, these the- are from
1: a dive on what cycle?
0: any turnaround he wanted so what he had to do was he had to be in the mind space to be able to deliver the right rate the right count and if it took four hours it took four hours but we rehearsed what was required um and then and and then a year out from the olympics i recorded the audio from the world championships so i recorded what it was to hear his name come out hear cameron's name the crowd how long it took and before he would just we go on every 50 he would listen to that um crowd and what that felt like again to to desensitize him to the arena and work out you know so he felt like when he walked out i've done this a hundred times i've been doing this for three years it's just a case of like riding a bike for him um and i did that set you know like i said I did that three years out and i did it from the trials into the major meet for three years and started at 16 um 16 50s at 28 6 all the way down and then it started I started at 1450s actually on year two out, I and mean, then I started at 1450s a year out, um, all with the view to get down to front-end pace, with the right rate, the right count, and hundred percent, 110% familiarity with it. And Jeez. lo and behold, he went out on 26 mid, he got the right rate, 57, 58 rate, um, the right count, and then the second half takes care of itself. So.
1: Jesus, Mel, you're on another level, girl, like you're, uh, you're setting the bar high for everybody, every other coach out there, you're kind of on that Bob Bowman, Michael Phelps level, the connection you guys have with each other and what you're doing with them. And it's uh, impressive, very, very impressive. Love it. Uh, Good stuff. So listen, I appreciate you taking your time. I know you're busy. And uh, I know you got a lot of work to do. So this has been very informative, very helpful. Um, Big fan of yours. Love your work. And uh, wanted to know what you're doing. So thanks for letting us in today. I appreciate that.
0: Thanks, Brett. I've enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Listen, take care. And hopefully we can chat again, maybe after you uh, win the ISL championship this year. All right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Take care, Mel.
0: Yes, thanks. Bye.